Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. In this episode, I will be interviewing Lord Alf Dubbs. One of the most respected figures in British politics, Dubbs, who was born in Prague in 1932, was one of 669 mainly Jewish children saved by British stockbroker Nicholas Winton. Determined that politics could be used as a force for good, Dubbs won a Labour seat during Margaret Thatcher's landslide victory in 1979. During his tenure, he served as Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees and Race Relations. After his shock defeat in 1987, he became CEO of the Refugee Council and joined the House of Lords in 1994. To this day, he is a tireless campaigner for refugee rights and is now a patron of many charities working in this field. In 2016, Dubbs moved an amendment, later to become known as the Dubbs Amendment, that the UK should take in unaccompanied child refugees from Europe. Having previously agreed to accept the amendment into the Brexit bill, the current government have since taken it out. But now, age 90, Dubbs still fights on. We met in October in his Westminster offices, a small room, piled high with papers. It had a welcoming, professorial air. A generous, twinkling presence, Dubbs exudes a remarkable positive energy. It is my hope that we will remember the humanity that was shown to children like me and honour that humanity by standing together and once again welcoming those persecuted by war, he says. I hope you enjoy listening. you a quote that you said oh my god I'll deny it <laughs> when I was six the UK saved my life and gave me a home and hope I want my adopted country to live up to its proud humanitarian tradition by giving hope to the refugee children of today yeah. Yeah. we're speaking at a moment in our country's political history where the plight of refugees is as precarious as it's ever been yeah. Can you tell me how you're feeling at the moment about the situation? Well, I vary from being disappointed to being depressed about it. Uh, after all, uh, when I came on a kindertransport from Prague in 1939, <coughs> Britain took 10,000 uh, children on kindertransport from Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia, and it seemed to be that worked quite well. And Britain was the only country, as far as I remember, even the Americans said it was additional to quota, the only country that others said no. And that worked quite well. And then post-war, Britain was pretty good. Uh, post-war, Britain was pretty good. And then, <coughs> and then of course, it, it began to go wrong, and it's gone badly wrong under the present government. Uh, I think, I think the hostility to refugees and to refugee children is very depressing um, because if our political leaders send hostile comments out, then the public go along with that and, and it means the willingness of people to welcome refugees is, is that much less. Having said that, the willingness to accept Ukrainians has been phenomenal. True. Now there are arguments about because they're white, they're not Afghans, and they're not Syrians. Nevertheless, the willingness has been phenomenal. But even before that, there was quite a lot of support, particularly for refugee children. Um, and 
when the government sends out hostile signals, it's harder for the public to go along with it. So I think it's depressing that we're being negative, and I think the President Secretary is even more negative than, than, than Priti Patel, and that was pretty bad. I never thought we could get worse than that, but I think it's got even worse by what she's saying. How do you manage to remain optimistic? Do you manage to remain optimistic? Well, I suppose if I didn't, there'd be no point in, no point in continuing. Uh, but partly, no, I think the other thing is there are a lot of superb young people who work either for NGOs or work as volunteers in refugee camps. I've met them in Calais, I've met them on the Greek islands, and they're fantastic people who've given up a year or two of their lives as volunteers uh, in order to help their even more vulnerable fellow human beings. And they're pretty, when they do that, then it'd be shabby of people like me not to continue to, to as it were, fight the cause in Parliament. We have a, we've had victories occasionally. Yes. Uh, and, and the victories are worth it. If, if you get one refugee child to safety, that's probably worth it. There are some, there's something in the Quran, something in, I don't know, Old Testament or something. I'm a humanist, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> but um, there are things which say, you know, if, if, you, if you give a decent life to one person, you're doing it for humanity. And, uh, and I, think, I think that's what keeps me optimistic. Public opinion is important because when, when, uh, when I had an amendment done in 2016 about child refugees, <coughs> and the government originally said no, and then public opinion woke up to what was happening. And they saw these horrific pictures of uh, ships sinking in the Mediterranean, the, of, a, of a little uh, Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, drowned on the Mediterranean beach. <coughs> and I think the British public woke up to this and realised we can do something. And there was a wave of support, and that worked its way through to Theresa May was then the Home Secretary. It worked its way through to her, and she summoned me in to say, we propose to accept your amendment. Now, they, they were rather shabby about how they did it, and, and they kept the numbers down. Nevertheless, they did it. Uh, and and uh, I think public opinion had its part to play. Unless we deal with this internationally, we're not going to... No one country can do it on its own. And it would be much better if we said we're all going to share responsibility. But that's a wider political issue, which is not getting very much traction at the moment. Your latest attempt at an amendment, am I right or wrong, was in 2020 to the Brexit bill. Yeah, well, that's right. The, what, my 2016 amendment, <coughs> my 2016 amendment was about unaccompanied children who didn't, in Europe, who didn't have any family here. Mm. And uh, the history of that was we discovered there were, there were about 70,000, 80,000 of them. And, and somewhere in Europe, and all we wanted was to summon them to come here. Now, however, of the children in the camp scene, in, or, or sleeping off in Calais after the jungle was pulled down, uh, or in the, on the Greek islands, uh, the, 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 quite a few of the children had family here, relatives here. And so, under, before Brexit, under the Dublin Treaty, a European treaty that said that basically a refugee child in one EU country can apply to join relatives in another. So a Syrian boy in France could apply to join an uncle in Birmingham. And that worked quite well. Not as well as it should have done, but it worked quite well. And then uh, we were worried that once we left the EU, a disaster, but that's by the way, mm -hmm. uh, once we left the EU, um, that would stop. So I got an amendment down which, which said that um, uh, we should continue to negotiate to keep that treaty in effect going even after we've left the EU. And that passed the, passed the Lords, except in the Commons, and it became the 2017 Act. In the 2019 Act, the government took that out. Oh. And that was 
pretty shabby and said, oh no, we can do it under the immigration law as well. Afterwards, about two, two or three children only got here because they could stop it and there was no way forward without a, a proper legislative base. So that was, that was very shabby of the government. If you want a little anecdote, I was, I was actually incandescent because, you know, it had been passed and the government took it out. And so they summoned me to a meeting in Parliament. And I had three government ministers and seven officials, one from the cabinet office, against me. Odds of ten to one. <laughs> anyway, so I thought, well, and they, they kept giving me assurances. And one of the ministers, who was the immigration minister, who then became Northern Ireland secretary, who's now the justice secretary, he said, um, don't you trust me? So I looked at him in the eye and said, even if I trust you, I don't trust the government. Anyway, who's to say you'll be in your job in a few weeks' time? And he would move to Northern Ireland. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they were shabby. They were, they, they were mean. Mean-spirited about that. Uh, and, and, of course, with all the arguments about people crossing the channel in thing, but if we made it possible for there to be a legal way to safety, yeah. then the traffickers wouldn't get all the business. And then we've got to be friends with the French. Now, there's a slight sign that the present government, for all its faults, is, is actually... Instead of calling uh, Macron the enemy, possibly, as, 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 as our Prime Minister said some time ago, we should actually um, accept that we have to be friends with the French. They are allies. We have security agreements, all sorts of things with them. And cooperation with the French is the best way forward. So I think we can do that. We could cut down the number of people coming illegally. After all, in the past, they used to come on the back of lorries. Now they come on, on the boats. Terribly dangerous. People drown. Uh, and there are traffickers who are making all money out of this. And over 600 people a day, you know, quite regularly yeah. now. But it's got, it's got, that's got to stop. It's got to become a legal way to safety, uh, and, and we need to cooperate with the French to, to, to stop it. And, and I think a good relationship with the French is the only way forward. I think the Rwanda thing won't work, because I think legally the, the, the government are on weak ground. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has said, <coughs> this, is, this is out of order, this doesn't, mm. it's, not, it's not within the convention. We've signed the convention, how can we ignore it? Um, how can we do such a thing? Anyway, it's not even been properly debated. Um, if somebody is sent to Rwanda, and they get there, and they're given refugee status, they're stuck in Rwanda. If they're not given refugee status, do they stay there, or they, do they come back? I mean, it's ill thought out. We don't even know what the position is. It's a total breach of human rights. It's an appalling thing to do. And there are other things about the Nationality and Borders Bill, which we're also going to challenge. So a combination of political challenges and hopefully legal challenges will put a stop to some of the worst successes. And do you feel a particular fire in your gut at the moment? any more than usual or has it always been the case that I remember well I have to work on the fire that's there at the moment <laughs> keep the fire alive <laughs> but uh, no I, well I think I've been quite uh, passionate about this for some time but, you have. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah well, look it's not just me the point is because of my background I've got far more publicity and the NGOs with whom I work have all said um, you know keep get get the publicity it, it seems as if it's a one-person effort. It's not. A lot of people are doing it. But because I get the publicity, they think it's just me, which is unfair on all the other people who are involved, both in politics and in the NGO field. You have said before that, um, that you don't think that politics works if we denigrate the people who've been elected. Yeah. That that's not a constructive way to be. Well, that's because there's an anti-sort of particularly anti-MP mood. Mm. I don't like it when on, on, on um, 
question time or any questions, somebody makes a cheap shot at MPs and the, and the audience all, all, all applaud. Because although there are some bad people in politics, they seem to have got in the cabinet more than anywhere else, but there are some bad people in politics, um, there are a lot of decent politicians, or there used to be anyway, I think there still are, who, who believe public service and, and, and the public life still matters. And if we denigrate the people making those decisions, we're just weakening the basis of our democracy. So I, 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 and there are a lot of the thing is that people who are doing the worthy stuff don't get so much publicity as the, as the bad apples, and there are some bad apples around, and, and there's sort of a wave of anti-politician hysteria now. I mean, I get a few, I get a few nasty things, um, you know, uh, threats and stuff, but, but 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 most of the hostility to refugees is, is also based on hostility to women. And it's That's women in public life who get much worse than men. So although I may say I've had death threats and stuff like that, and, and nasty, you know, I've had people saying, pity you survived the Holocaust and so on, but, 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 but actually, uh, actually women in public life get it much, much worse. And I think that's horrible, that racism and misogyny all combine. Uh, and so uh, I'm not going to moan about my position because, because it's, oh, there's one person who was up in court for threatening, for threatening me. But apart from that, um, you know, it, it, uh, most of it's pretty feeble, and the, the pretty feeble attacks on me, and the support is great. People had wonderful, wonderful letters of support and thank you and so on. And that far outweighs the nasty stuff. But the women get, I repeat myself, the women get it very nastily in public life. I'm sure Diane Abbott gets more abuse than almost anybody because she's black and mm -hmm. she's a woman. And, and, and I think it's horrible the way the, 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 way the public uh, attack women in public life more than anybody else. You don't get disheartened by humankind's lowest ebbs. Well, I, I, it's, a bit, it's a bit disappointing, but then, then I say to myself, these people are sick, uh, these people have got real problems, and they're working, working their way out on, by being abusive. And, uh, you know, uh, so what? So what? Uh, you know, and I occasionally, I occasionally quote it. The, the one about pity you survived the Holocaust has come up more than once. So when, when there, was a, there was a bombing on the Parsons Green tube, you know, uh, and they said it's my fault because the person was allegedly a refugee. Well, it was nothing to do with me, but anyway, but, yeah. So, but but one has to. I have to keep it in proportion. I could moan, but it's no. I'm not going to moan because I feel women in public life are at, at the cutting edge of the nastiness that's going on, and we've got to respect the position of women in public life. We're trying to get more women into public life, and if they're being abused and murdered sometimes, that's horrible. Mm. Absolutely horrible. motives in a way that that's honest because I can't always remember you see I, I can remember things that happened to me but I can't always remember what I felt if we go back to my childhood it, 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 that's how that's how memory works for me anyway so things events yes uh, but but my feelings so people ask me what did I feel at the time however I think I was passionately interested in politics from an early age and why was that because I think because I was trying to understand why what had happened to me had happened you were six years old 
when you came over on the yeah. kinder transport. Yeah. Um, could you tell me what you can remember of that? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, my background is my father was Jewish, my mother wasn't. So, mm. that's, and so, but partly what I remember and what what I learned afterwards. My father uh, said to his cousins, "If the Nazis come, I'm getting out." And they said they'll take their chance. In 1942, they were taken to Auschwitz, we, we discovered later. Uh, anyway, he left as soon as the Nazis occupied Prague in March 1939. Uh, my mum tried to get out and was refused permission to leave. And so she got me on a kinder transport. Uh, but before that, um, I remember when the Germans came to Prague, we had to tear picture of President Benish out of our school books and stick in the picture of Hitler and things like that, German soldiers everywhere. Anyway, um, my mum, I was very lucky because, in fact, uh, as I'll explain in a minute, my mum actually got out in the end, but she was refused permission to leave. They threw her down the stairs uh, and said, your permission and exit permit is not granted. And they threw her, the Nazi officials, and they threw her passport after her. And she was lying there on the floor at the bottom of the stairs, and while she was working out, it was broken, the passport came after her, and that gave her hope. I'd yeah. give her hope, because without that she... Anyway, and so she, she managed to fiddle her way out or escape somehow, and she arrived in London the day before the war started. So that was pretty good. So I came on the kinder transport. Uh, anyway, and, and so I remember my mother seeing me off, all the parents not knowing whether they'd see their children again, Clark Station. Uh, I was six, I, was, I didn't know anybody. I was probably one of the youngest, on, if not the youngest, on the train. And the journey was interminable. Um, hard wooden seats, but at the age of six you don't mind that. Uh, and then we got the Dutch border. When we got the Dutch border, the older ones cheered because we <laughs> were out of reach of the Nazis. Uh, I, I, I knew it was significant, but for life me, I didn't know why. I was looking for windmills and wooden shoes because that's what I knew about Holland. And then went through the night, it was dark, we got to the Hook of Holland on the boat and then to Harwich and then, um, and then to Liverpool Street. Uh, now, I was luckier than many. I think... I had my father waiting for me. Uh, uh, I think quite a, some of them had family, some didn't. So I was luckier than most. Uh, and then my father was anxious, worried about um, whether my mother would ever get out and so on and so forth. And uh, eventually she did manage to get out and arrived in London on, on the 31st of August. And you remember Germany attacked Poland on the 1st of September. Oh, so goodness. she would not, if it had been a day later, she wouldn't have done it. How did he have the foresight, your father? Well, I, I, because he, he died soon afterwards in England, um, and, uh, he died within a year, uh, and um, I always feel one should ask one's parents every question one can think of, because once they've gone, a lot, a lot of it's not no longer there. Um, well, I don't know, because he wasn't political, but I, I, I can only surmise this, that after the Germany had their... Um, Anschluss with Austria in 1938. My father sent, told my mum to go to Vienna and find out what's going on. So she went to see some friends in Vienna and they took her in a car to the suburbs of Vienna, kept the engine running and told her what was going on. And in those days surveillance methods weren't that, weren't that effective as they are now, but clearly they were very worried about the Gestapo overhearing them. And the Nazi, the Austrians, of course, were more Nazis than the Germans. Yeah. Uh, and so they told her what, what was happening. 
because they, they started being nasty to the Jews almost immediately after the Anschluss in Austria. It took a bit longer in, 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 in parts of Germany, as far as I know. So I think my mum came back and said to my father, this is going to be terrible if the Nazis come. And I think that's what made him, made him want to get out, I think. And did he have a job here to come to? Well, um, it's quite complicated here. He, he was offered a friend of his who left Central Europe years before, uh, with some money, said to my father that if um, if you um, um, if you ever get out, I might be able to offer you a job. This friend had been allowed by the British government to open up a textile factory, either in, and the British government said you can do it in an area of high unemployment, and they identified Scotland and Northern Ireland. So this chap found a disused factory in Northern Ireland and said to my father, if you ever get out, I'll give you a job there. Ah. Okay. So we travelled to Northern Ireland. My father got a job there and then he died, had a heart attack and died. And that left my mum not speaking much English and me, English was my third language, uh, me in Northern Ireland, she had no money, nothing. So she, we, we hung on there a bit and then we went to Manchester where she began scrubbing floors in a British restaurant. Do you know what British restaurants are? Were. I think they were restaurants um, uh, well, affiliated to factories, were they? Something yeah, to do with uh, well, factories? Well, that's, well every, every factory was a war factory, but they didn't have canteens. So they set up a network of cafeterias called British restaurants where the workers in the war factories could go and have a midday meal. And my mum started scrubbing floors in Cheatham Hill in Manchester, in one of those. Your mother, who was presumably an intelligent, sophisticated woman. Well... Anyway, um, anyway, well, you have to, you know, uh, she then got a bit of promotion, but um, the reason we went to Manchester was because there were some f friends she knew from refugees from Vienna who were there, and so, uh, and she sent me to a school run by the Czech government in exile for Czech refugee children. Ah. So that was a boarding school, because my mum was sleeping on the, on the sofa in, the, in, in, in their friend's flat while we t she found somewhere to live. I mean, your father's death was a trauma on top of a trauma for you and your mother, presumably. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, he just, uh, he just, um, he went down to listen to the news, uh, this is in Northern Ireland, uh, and, and collapsed, and an ambulance came and he was dead by the afternoon. I'm so sorry. No, it's a long time ago. Shh. Do you think the things that happened to you, do you think it made you tough? I don't know. You presumably had to be resilient, maybe, is a better word. Well, I don't know whether one can judge one's own resilience or no. not. I think what it made me do, my mum died even when I was in my 20s, but it made me realise that she'd had everything against her, you know. Uh, no job, no pension, nothing at all, and, and not speaking much English, and then she had a real problem. And uh, she had a problem finding jobs as well. I remember she was, uh, later on, when the British restaurants became the school meal service and she was, she was, she was applying for, she had the number two job in Blackburn. Yeah. And her boss uh, moved on. And my mum acted up for six months, applied for the job and wasn't given it. Acted, nobody was appointed. Acted up for another six months, applied again. And again, she wasn't appointed. And she heard somebody say in the in of the interview panel, uh, we're not giving a job to that bloody foreigner. I'm not sure about bloody, but we're not giving a job to that foreigner. So you've experienced... And she was, she, she was distraught, she absolutely distraught. And I wasn't old enough or mature enough to know how to be supportive. 
You've experienced firsthand what the people you're fighting for now experience on a daily basis. Well, element of that, yes. I think, I think it, it made me realise that one has to. Uh, well, I think one has to believe in oneself, and one has to believe one can do a few things. And I think I've learnt. It took me a long time. I wasn't mature enough. I think I was quite immature at the time. I, I think I've learnt to uh, that, that uh, you've got to go for things and uh, pitch in and not hold back too much. Mm. So you went into politics because you thought if politics could be used in as negative a way as it had been by the Nazis, that there was another side to the coin. That politics m might also be a way of, of making changing things for the better. Yes, I, th I think so. It sounds awfully awfully wise. I don't think I was that wise, but anyway, you asked what what I think I mm. thought. And how did you feel? So, in 1979, when you were elected, was there a moment ever where you thought, "I'm a refugee"? In the House of Commons? Yes. Yeah. First of all, I was surprised to be elected because I won by 300 votes and I wasn't supposed to win. Labour was supposed to... Um, it was 1979 and it was a, um, the year Thatcher became Prime Minister and I, I, there were a lot of Conservative, Labour seats that Conservatives had targeted and they won, more, won those and more besides. The only one they didn't win was Battersea South. Uh, 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 not because of me, but just a good campaign and various things worked together. However... Um, yeah, uh, I was surprised, and when I was standing up um, in Prime Minister's question, I was I was on the list of Thatcher, and I stood up and I, th I thought to myself, I can't believe I'm doing this. I bet. You know, and I nearly forgot my question. <laughs> That's <laughs> I can't believe it's happening. And and um, and then I was put on a. Um, the Public Bill Committee for the British Nationality Act, and there was there were eighteen of us, I think, MPs, and there was I, a refugee, uh, naturalised Brit, uh, in a committee dealing with the future of British nationality. I thought, what other country would do that? Let me go on such a committee. Do you have a survivor's guilt? No. Why would you have a survivor's guilt? I'm answering my own question. No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't have a survivor's guilt because look. That was like, I, there was an event here where, where, where Holocaust survivors of the camps were here, and I was just going out saying hello to them and said, "What's your connection?" I said, "I came on a kinder transport," and they said, "Wonderful." <laughs> I said, "No," I said, "Look," I said, I, "I all I did as a child was get on a train. The horrors that you went through, there's no comparison. You know, I had it, I had it easy. But I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any. I don't think I have a survivor's guilt. No. It's important that you. You remember it and recall it. You know, to people who don't know, uh, how low humanity can sink. Yeah, that's well, that's right. And of course, I was aware of it at an earlier age because I was thinking about it all, and uh, I knew I'd come on a kinder transport, but I didn't know about Nicky Winton who organised the kinder transport. But you know, some of us get together. We, uh, well, most of them not live anymore. But we used to get together. You know, on um, those of us that came on a kinder transport. Uh, we used to have little get-togethers, and those of us who were particularly friends of Nicky Winton's used to mm. get together. So there were, but but now there's just a handful of us left, you know, the, uh, and some can't travel anymore, and so on. And gradually, we're all getting too old for this sort of thing. When did you first meet Nicky Winton? Well, yeah, I knew I'd come on a Kinder Transport, of course, but it wasn't until he appeared on these television things, and I, I didn't go. On, I wasn't on the first program, but I was on the second. There were two, and he, um, I met him, and then we became friends. And uh, we got on well, and he, he, he was interested in politics, and he, he was uh, 
fantastic guy. I loved this because he saved my life, but he was a fantastic guy in all sorts of ways. I remember when he was about 103 or 4 at his birthday party, he said, um, I said, Nicky, how are you? He said, I'm fine from the neck upwards. <laughs> but he had a great sense of humour, and he couldn't, didn't suffer fools, fools gladly, and, and he was very interested in, in, in politics, and so we had a lot going, going for our conversations. And how old was he when he died? Uh, 106, I think. I went to his 106th birthday party, and he was fading. He was, then he was at his house, in, he lived in Maidenhead. He was a constituent of Theresa May's, but she knew that he was Labour. <laughs> Did you keep him abreast of your political...? Well, we used to, occasionally we used to meet, and occasionally we, uh, we, even we drove out and had lunch with him, and so on. You know, he was getting on. He was, you know, take somebody who's 100 for lunches, you know. But he, um, yeah, we used to talk politics. He wanted to know what was going on, yes. Oh, yes, he had a very good, good, sharp curiosity about things. And he saved your life? Absolutely. into politics was it always with the intention of making a difference to the lives of, of refugees or was that something that materialised once you were in well, well put it this way uh, I was locally uh, I was quite involved in things to do with race relations and racial equality and so on so I suppose yeah I suppose I came in with, with with a human rights agenda and with with an agenda of equality, particularly ending discrimination against black people and so on. So it was a very short step from that to refugees. And you were an MP for nine years. A, a, 1979 to 87. Yeah, I lost. I lost. <laughs> I was on the dole for a year. Were you? Oh, yeah. Were you devastated to lose your seat? Well, I'd half expected it, more than half, but yeah, it wasn't great. Because you're, you're frantically busy as an MP, you're then frantically busy fighting an election, and then suddenly it's all gone, whoops. And, and initially you get a buzz because all your friends invite you for meals and, and then it all dies away. And the most painful thing was um, when, when the Commons was back and there was a Queen's speech and Parliament was sitting and then suddenly I realised I wasn't there. You know, initially after an election there's nothing much happening and then suddenly I realised I'm not there. And you were on the dole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had a family to support. Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife was teaching part-time, so it, was, oh, it wasn't bad. Yeah, it was, yeah, I got £31.45 a week. My goodness. Yeah. Good but I'll tell you what happened. There was one thing that happened. So I signed on for the dole on the Monday after the election. And they said... Uh, and. Uh, but they said, well, um, well, first of all, I had to fill in a form. They don't treat you well if you're unemployed, you know. And, yeah, and they said, why are you unemployed? So I put in not enough votes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they had no sense of humor. And then they said, uh, well, why, do you, why, why did you come in on Friday? Well, I said, I didn't lose my job till four o'clock on Friday morning. <laughs> I was tired. Anyway, you could have come Friday afternoon. I said, I was cleaning up my office. Anyway, I appealed against their refusal, to, and I won the appeal. So they backdated my unemployment to the benefit to the Friday. 
it's a good time to talk about money. Has money been a motivating factor in your life in any way? I mean, having seen your mother struggle as much as she had, how has that affected you, your view? No, no, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I don't particularly value money. No, I'm, I'm not terribly interested. No, I, don't. I mean, I look. It's easy to say that if you've got enough, enough to eat your house, enough to, uh, enough for food, and, and possibly for holiday. So, but I've never, never felt particularly no. It's funny because it's such a motivating factor for so many people in their in their careers, isn't well, it? You are, well, look, it's easy to say from the luxury of being moderately comfortable. It's easy to say money is important, mm. you know. And I think of people who are up against it. No, I mean, I mean, you know, it was very hard for my mother because she was really no income and nothing, and she's bad way. Do you remember feeling concerned about that? Yeah, I did, yes. <laughs> so for you, your primary concern has always been the value of what you're doing. Well, it sounds a bit pompous. Yeah, I, I no, hope so. I don't think it sounds pompous. I think what I'm asking you is what in your career has been your main motivating factor? Well, I think... I, I, I think... Politics has been an interest, and uh, and using politics to change things for the better probably has been the thing. Yeah, as a humanist, one has to live for one's relationship with and one's contribution to other people. Because you're 89 years old and you are still going. Well, I try and justify that. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I keep saying to I keep saying to friends of mine, if there's any sign I'm losing it. You've got to tell me because one doesn't always know one has lost it. Okay, and I've seen people in the Lords who've lost it, and who keep going because some of the people outside press them to ask questions which they don't under themselves understand. So um, I said, I said to a lot of people, you must promise to tell me if there's any sign I'm losing it, or I've lost it, I'm going. Did you have a, um, any reservations about accepting a place in the Lords? Yes, I don't like titles. And, and I, 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 I believe we should be elected, and I've always, all along voted for an elected second chamber. But on the other hand, it, it is an opportunity to do things, you know, and I probably couldn't have done nearly as much for refugees if I'd been in the Commons. Uh, so, yeah, I felt, uh, yeah, I still have, I'm unhappy that we're not an elected house, even though if we were elected I wouldn't be here anymore because of my age. Uh, but, but, um, uh, because I think it's about legitimacy, it's about um, it's about accountability, and, and I think politicians who make decisions that affect the lives of other people should be accountable. And uh, the accountability system in the Lords is is really not there. In the Commons, it's there, but you you've got to be re-elected, and you've got your local Labour Party, and so on. So I, mind you, there are enough people who know me from when I was in the Commons, and so on, to make so they do hold me to account. But that's because of the quirk of having been an MP. Mm. Uh, but, uh, uh, so there is an element of accountability, but not, not the sort of accountability that perhaps there should be. So I, I, I do not like an unelected second chamber. Going back to your faith, is it a faith? Humanism, no, you can't describe Belief, that, I don't it? know. A belief. Is it a guiding principle for you? Well, well... Uh, I, don't know. I mean, 
Look, humanism is a very mild thing, actually. Mm. You know, it's it's not an aggressive form of atheism. It 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 allows for an element of uncertainty. Uh, so I I just think I can't believe all the religious stuff. You know, I'm afraid I'm afraid I I I I I, I, I mean, there's some chap who shouted at me in the street and said, oh, and I said, look, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't believe in God. Ah, uh, oh, you'll die the eternal death. Uh, in the fires of hell. So I said, "Well, well, do you think do you do you think um, your 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 God is kind and loving? Yes. Well, if he's kind and loving, why why would he send me to the eternal fires? <laughs> anyway, but, but you know, uh, no. I think the best story in that one. Well, I've got lots of anecdotes about humanism. But, uh, I was speaking at him during an election campaign up in Yorkshire, and in the middle of the campaign, they asked me to do a meeting. And, and they had schools, and I was talking about refugees, schools and faith groups and da da da, and, um, and the community groups and so on. And there was a woman, a vicar, and I was a used to the humanist. And I went up to her and I said to her, I suppose you'd disapprove of me being a humanist. She said, Not at all, she said graciously. You and I believe in the same thing. I just believe in God as well. Well, you know, I, th I think the, the, the cliched question you can, uh, I can put is, you know, where was God at Auschwitz? And and uh, Christians fumble with that one, uh, because a God who is good wouldn't have allowed people to create Auschwitz. So then they say, well, he gave human beings the right to self-determination. But I said, by doing that, God must have known, so there's a God, must have known that we could use that right to self-determination in a nasty way. So, I, you know, I, I think if you create something which then has a momentum of its own, you're responsible for that momentum. The faith groups have been terrific altogether. Faith groups have very good audiences for this. Uh, the first time I went to Calais to visit when the jungle was still there, I think there were 12 of us, and I included five rabbis. Really? So five rabbis in one go. So, you know, I, I'm, uh, this is, you know, this works. It, uh, if people don't object to me being a humanist, I don't object to them having beliefs. What was well, the I can see they're entitled to their beliefs if they can see that I'm entitled to mine. Was it very um, upsetting, the jungle? Yeah, awful. Well, the jungle was upsetting. When I went afterwards, the jungle was no longer there. It was upsetting. Going to Lesbos was upsetting. Uh, all these things were very upsetting, yeah. Even, I even went to a refugee camp in Jordan. And, uh, and there's a, there are 70,000 people in this refugee camp, mainly Syrians. And... The, 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 it's physically much better than the others I've talked about because it's got proper prefab buildings, it's got water, sanitation, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. Um, but I was talking to the Syrian boy of 16 and I said, what's your position? He said, well, I've, I've had my education at a school in the camp and I said, I, I can't find a job in the camp, I can't find a job outside the camp, what do I do now? And I think the most depressing thing for refugees is lack of hope. And I think what we've got to do is to give them some hope. Do you fear growing old? So do I fear? Fear growing old. Do you mind growing older? Um, <laughs> well, uh, no, I don't mind too much, no. No, I don't mind. There are things I wish I could do better than I used to be able to do, but, but, uh, but I... I don't mind. No. I think I, I, there's no point in hankering after the past. Uh, that, that's terrible to think back and say, oh, I wish life were like it was then. No, no, I think one has to make the most of where, where one is. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In my next episode, the final in this series, I will be talking to the actress Miriam Margulies. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original theme music. Until next time, goodbye.